My name is Erskine Bell, the host of the Black Self-Sabotage Trap podcast. This podcast takes an honest look at why so many Black Americans continue to lag behind all other groups in so many areas. Is this a byproduct of racism? Or is it largely due to the influence of Black culture? Black self-sabotage. Today's episode is entitled, Struggling for Voting Rights. It's the second in a three-part series. Why did Black Americans have to fight so hard for the right to vote? European immigrants didn't have to fight for theirs. Why us? What made our case special? If you missed the first episode, please go back and listen to My Right to Vote. Growing up, I used to ask a lot of questions about everything. Often when my dad and I we were sitting down talking, he would tell me, he would say, boy, if you really want to believe something, don't look into it. Just go with what people tell you. Repeat what they say. Because if you look into it, most of the time you're going to find a thread. And when you pull on that thread, the whole thing is just going to unravel in front of you. And it's not going to be anything like you thought. So stop asking questions about everything. If you truly wish to believe something is true, just leave it alone. Years ago, I took a constitutional law course at a very conservative university. We were studying at this point in time about George Mason. He was one of the founders that refused to sign the Constitution because it did not contain a Bill of Rights. He believed that the Constitution, as it was written, gave too much power to the central government and that it was incomplete because it did not have a Bill of Rights that guaranteed individual liberty to everyone. During one of the lectures, the professor, who was very good, he was a very good professor, he always encouraged you to ask thought-provoking questions. He read this statement from a paper that he had, which stated, speaking of George Mason, a rationalist who had little faith in the working of governmental bodies. Mason fought passionately for the freedom of the individual, citizen, or slave, and he was largely responsible for ensuring that the protection of the rights of the individual would be such an essential part of the American system. He made eye contact with me at this point because I always sat right down front, right in front of his desk, right in the middle of the lecture hall. He went on to say, as he made contact with me, did you know that one of the reasons why he refused to sign the Constitution was that he disagreed with them postponing the end of the slave trade for another 20 years. He did not want any more slaves brought in. And as soon as he said that, my hand went up. I saw that thread that my dad had warned me about, that if I pull it, the whole thing would unravel. So I asked the question. I said, Professor, 
You said he was about the rights of both citizens and slaves. Did you know that at the time that he was lobbying for the Bill of Rights, that he owned himself more than 100 slaves? Then I asked him, would he be able to expand on Spencer Cruz's statement? He was a professor of U.S. history where he wrote, Virginia, the place where Mason was from and that he was representing, as a whole wasn't in need of any more slaves. And by selling slaves to states like Georgia and South Carolina, Virginia slaves could actually increase in value. In that sense, Cruz saw that from a Virginian perspective, ending the slave trade was a major economic incentive. So I asked him, was he against slavery or ending the slave trade so that no more slaves could be brought in and the ones that he had that he could sell to Georgia and South Carolina because they would be more profitable? And the professor told me to go on, why would I say that? I said, well, I don't think he was really interested in the rights of slaves because when he died, in his will, he did not set any of his slaves free. And that was that thread that I had pulled that unraveled the whole conversation about him being concerned about slaves' rights. What he was concerned about was his pocketbook. Last week, I talked a lot about the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment given citizens the right to vote. However, women, according to the 14th Amendment, Section 2, when you read the language, it sort of implies that maybe the right to be citizen was only granted to men, because Section 2 reads, to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age, any citizen of the United States or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion to which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. So to be a citizen, you had to be a male. I've always wondered, Why do men always think they know what is best for women? Why would they conclude that women should not vote? Now, some of the crazy reasons that they were kicking around at that time, the top five were the mental exertion of voting would cause infertility in women. Number two, Women's brains were inferior to men's, and so women were incapable of participating in politics. Number three, the majority of women didn't want to vote. Number four, women would neglect their home and family, causing society to unravel. And number five, women were too good for the dirty nature of politics. Looking back in history, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton, they're largely credited with laying the foundation to get the 19th Amendment passed and ratified, guaranteeing women the right to vote. However, during that movement, there was a rift. 
between the white women that were leading the women's right to vote effort and the passage of the 15th Amendment that gave black men the right to vote. Getting a new amendment to the Constitution passed wasn't an easy thing at that time because it took three quarters of the 48 states in the Union at that time in order to get the amendment done, which meant that they were going to have to get a lot of white conservative male leaders in the South behind their effort. And in doing so, Susan B. Anthony developed the so called Southern strategy. The argument they came up with was to sell women's suffrage in the South was hey, conservative leaders, we know that you don't like the black men voting. Why not enfranchise, especially white women, so they can offset the votes of black men? That was their strategy. Frederick Douglass was a big part of the women's movement. However, there came a time. When the two groups split apart over this issue. As President Ulysses S. Grant took office and argued in support of the 15th Amendment in 1869, the message of universal suffrage within the American Equal Rights Association began to crumble. On the one hand, some leaders, such as Frederick Douglass, supported the 15th Amendment and argued that it was. The Negro's Hour, and that black male voting rights should come first. Once the 15th Amendment was ratified, the ARA could then push for a separate amendment for women's suffrage. On the other hand, prominent voices such as Susan B. Anthony and Staten argued that any constitutional amendment that did not grant women's right to vote was unacceptable. If anyone was deserving of the vote, it was educated white women. Stanton, in particular, argued that African Americans were ignorant of the laws and customs of the United States. Therefore, a serious question whether we had better stand aside and see Sambo walk into the kingdom. Frederick Douglass responded to those statements, he said, If the Negro knows enough to fight and die for this country, he knows enough to vote. If he knows enough to pay taxes for the support of the government, he knows enough to vote. So, as you can see, a split is beginning to form in the two groups. The tipping point came in May of 1869. Frederick Douglass rose to speak and argued that Stanton's use of racist language and stereotypes was offensive. He continued by arguing, I do not see how anyone can pretend that there is the same urgency in giving the ballot to a woman as to the Negro. With us, the question is a matter of life and death, at least in 15 states of the Union. He was referring to the former states of the Confederacy. When women, because they are women, are hunted down through the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are in danger of having their homes burned down over their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, 
then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. However, Susan B. Anthony responded to Frederick Douglass by saying, If you will not give the whole loaf of suffrage to the entire people, give it to the most intelligent first. If intelligence, justice, and morality are to have precedence in the government, let the question of women, white women, be brought up first and that of the Negro last. I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work for or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Many people in the country did not understand why black people were fighting so hard to vote. Their thought process was after all that this country has done for them, they should just be happy to be here. Why are they seeking for equality with us to be able to do things that we're able to do? Why is voting so important to them? And then one organization, they thought to appease the black women who were fighting for voting rights as well. They decided that we can appease them by building them a monument. They wanted to build a monument. Not very far from Lincoln to put the black women's monument in a place of honor. Let me read to you from the Norfolk Post, number 182, dated January the 10th, 1923. Here's what they wanted to do for black women The song and story of the Old South is woven into House Resolution 13672. It passed the Senate Bill 4119, introduced by Hep Stetman, North Carolina. It would authorize the erection in Washington of a monument to the fateful colored mammies of the South by the daughters of the Confederacy. And what man brought up in the South doesn't still hold a warm spot in his heart for his old nigger mammy of his childhood. One who could bandage stubbed toes just as well as she could pick splinters out of his tiny fingers, who could bake the best cookies imaginable and turn out the juiciest fried chicken the whole world has ever known, who could delight in childish joys and sympathize with childish tears, and who, when the final day came, usually was laid to rest in the family graveyard alongside her white folks. A congressman might speak for hours and yet fail to do justice to her type. They wanted a monument of a black woman holding a white child, and one of the letters that they received in support of this was from Harry B. Fields. He wrote in his letter in the Washington Post Fields expressed the belief that through their recognition of Mammy, the U.S. government would bring To recognize the strides that African American women have made since the Civil War. He believed that by recognizing Mammy, it would make others reflect on the good works done by African American women in the South. Other defenders said it was the best way to remember someone pivotal for raising of children in the South. Why would they want to leave this role and vote? 
they didn't know very much about black women. Later, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, black women faced the same issues as black men. Violence, poll tax, rape, literacy tests, grandfather clauses. So they did not really get their right to vote. People were very passionate about black people not voting. On September the 28th, 1868, over a period of about two weeks in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, about 250 black people were killed because they were trying to suppress the black turnout for voting. On April the 13th, 1873, this time in Grant Parish, Louisiana, they killed between 60 and 150 black men trying again to suppress them from coming out to vote. But one of the more depressing parts of this whole saga and black people voting has been the role of the United States Supreme Court. In 1935, the case Grovey versus Townsend, the Supreme Court decided that it was okay for the state of Texas to not allow black people to vote in so-called white primaries. This was in 1935, not 1835, in 1935. Only to be overturned a few years later in Smith versus Allwright where they concluded that it was in violation of the 14th and 15th Amendment for the Texas Democratic Party to prevent black Americans from voting in the Democratic primary. 1935, they said, hey, it's okay. They're looking at the same Constitution, looking at the same amendments, and then nine years later, they say, well, you know, we were wrong back then. This is a pattern with them when it comes to black voting rights. And then all the way up to 1965, we know it is Bloody Sunday when 600 activists set out in Alabama to march from Selma to Montgomery to protest black voting rights. And when they reached the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, they encountered state troopers who came out with billy clubs and tear gas and just beat the hell out of them. The event became known as Bloody Sunday. The late John Lewis remembers it this way. I went down on my knees. My legs went out from under me. I thought I was going to die. Now, people, I'm not telling you a story about something that happened in China. This is what happened in good old USA when it came to the issue of voting rights. Make sure that you join us next week for Episode 3 on exercising your right to vote. Now that we have the right to vote, what's keeping you from voting? Thanks for tuning in today. Remember... We are the masters of our own destinies. If you enjoyed the episode today and would like to be made aware when new episodes are posted, 
please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Or you can visit us at BlackSelfSabotageTrap.com. We would love to hear from you. Send us your comments about our show by using the website contact page to send us an email or clicking on the microphone icon to send us a voice message. Cheers. Cheers.